Section 49 of G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns The New Witness, 1922 This is a LibriVox Recordings. All LibriVox Recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joseph Grimer G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns The New Witness, 1922 by G.K. Chesterton Poland and the Pedants a little while ago, I happened to read, in a recognised and reasonably reliable English encyclopaedia, an article on Poland. I only happened to read it, for I was playing the parlour game of encyclopaedias, which is both varied and adventurous. The information I had derived had been diversified in character, and connected by a somewhat arbitrary common factor. Anyone conversing with me about the revival of learning will find my information about Politian rather out of proportion to my rather rudimentary knowledge of other Renaissance scholars. It will be observed that I frequently turn the conversation to the subject of Cardinal Pole, that interesting figure, to the neglect of similarly interesting figures. On polygamy and polar expeditions, those kindred topics, I am almost in the defiant mood of a specialist. On the habits of the polecat, I challenge all comers. On the habits of the politician, a creature of somewhat similar name and habits, I can find no notes made by any naturalist reported in this work of reference. And perhaps... That is because no encyclopedia can be literally up to date, and the ways of various kinds of vermin have been more specially and consciously studied since the issue of work. Anyhow, this sort of accidental antiquity is the only explanation of the article on Poland. If we wish to understand how big a blunder England made in its industrial and capitalist phase, the way to discover it is not to read the popular press, but the popular works of reference. The daily papers are accustomed to daily somersaults and daily surrenders, they are always ready to turn Poincare from a sage into a swashbuckler, or Collins from a murderer into a martyr. And it is in part of their conception of progress that with every new folly they forget the last folly, not only contradict it, but deny that they ever had it. Nobody could guess from an article on Tim Healy in today's paper what the articles on Tim Healy in the same paper used always to be like. Harmsworth could use the Kitchener he reviled to hide the Kitchener he had idolatrized, the Daily Mail that ran George down accepted no responsibility for the Daily Mail that cried him up. But an encyclopedia does, in a dreadful sense, fix folly as it flies, and immortalise the imbecility of an instant, like those pitiless snapshots in the picture papers which show a politician screwing up one eye or standing on one leg. The average encyclopedia is about ten years old. Much of it, of course, is very much older. But if the average reader will read the average encyclopedia, he will come on the reading revelation of all the tosh that he himself was talking ten years ago. If he has any conscience at all, he will read it shuddering, as it were a dreadful diary. The pitiless past will return, his sin will find him out. He will remember that he also believed in Carlyle, and the superiority of simple, pious, God-fearing Prussia over popish and immoral France. He also boasted that Americans were Anglo-Saxons, and that Anglo-Saxons were Germans. Is it possible that he himself once said, Germany is the mother root of nations. Alas, alas, he did. The secret has long been buried, and no blackmailer has dug it up from its dark grave. But there is the record or remainder of it staring in an old encyclopedia. We did say and hear, we did write and read, things as uncouth and unearthly. We did hear people saying that the Irish had no grievance, since they had all the benefits of the British constitution. We did hear that Benjamin, the son of Isaac, the son of Israel, was a sturdy English patriot, the passion for the English primrose. We did hear these things, uttering not a single scream, 
and we did hear things such as are written in this article about Poland. Needless to say, it is merely the Prussian view of Poland. It might have been translated direct from a Prussian pamphlet, and in a large degree it probably was, but like most other Prussian things, it is very amusing in an unconscious manner. The very arrangement of the paragraphs is funny. It winds up one paragraph by reciting in a dull and mechanical manner exactly what the worst of the Prussian kings, in conjunction with two other despots, did to Poland, that he made a triple partition of that national territory, or, in other words, hacked its live body into three pieces with a sabre. Then it begins a new paragraph with the freshness of the morning skylark. The main causes of the fall of Poland appear to have been, one, the want of patriotism and the cohesion among the nobles, each pursuing his own interests, and the country just being divided among a number of petty tyrants. Two, the want of a national middle class, the trade of the country being almost entirely in the hands of Jews and Germans. Three, the intolerance of the Jesuits, who persecuted on the one hand the dissidents, which caused them to sympathise with Prussia, and on the other persecuted also the orthodox inhabitants of the eastern provinces, and the Cossacks, who thus looked to Russia. Four, in a less degree than the first three causes, the weakness of character of the kings, etc., etc., etc. This is all very interesting, and it is very much as if somebody were to write in a daily paper today a report of the recent and rather celebrated inquest. The main causes of the death of Mr. Percy Thompson appear to have been 1. A slight debility of constitution which rendered him sensitive to any slight shock to which accident might subject him to 2. The want of something bracing in the climate of Ilford which may have had an enerviating effect on all inhabitants 3. The intolerance of the vicar or curates who continue to marry people right and left without reference to these climatic conditions. 4. In a less degree than the first three causes, the weakness of the character of Mr. Thompson, who, etc., etc., etc. Now, I'm not at all out of sympathy with those who feel a compassion even for the convicted murderers in such a case. I'm not sure that I would hang any murderer. I'm sure I would not hang every murderer. But if a man were to explain the causes of Mr. Thompson's death, in a philosophical fashion employed above, I should be moved to say, not without heat, that the causes of Mr. Thompson's death were nothing of the kind. I should be driven to the extremity of declaring, not without impatience, that the causes of Mr. Thompson's death were Mrs. Thompson and a young man named Bywaters. If it be necessary to add a third, to make a triad like those causes that destroyed Poland, I will cheerfully add the devil who lures men and women to destroy to their own destruction. The cause of the fall of Poland does not appear to have been but was the definite sort of cause which we call a crime. It was the crime of three tyrants, and especially of one tyrant, who defied God and man by deliberately doing to it what was not done to any other nation of Christendom. It was not the archaic ambition of nobles, for England has again and again suffered from that, and indeed, after the aristocratic triumph of 1688, may be said to suffer from it still. But that did not lead to England being torn in three, America taking Wales and the West Country, Germany, East Anglia and the North Country, and France taking Kent, London and the Midlands. It was not the want of a middle class, for whole peasant nations, though whole historic periods have been prosperous and united and free from such outrage without any middle class at all. The writer thought the Poles must want a middle class, just as he thought in his heart that the Poles must want eggs and bacon for breakfast, because the English are used to it. It was not the Jesuit intolerance, for it was a time when everybody was in that sense intolerant, with the possible exception of a few of the Jesuits. 
The nearest to the modern notion of the undenominational state can be found in the few who speculated with Suarez or experimented with James II. Every European nation retained a religious test in civic matters. Why was not every European nation cut to pieces? Obviously, it was not the weakness of the character of certain individual kings. There is not a historical chronicle in Christendom that is not crowded with individual kings who had weak characters. Yet nobody ever thought of remedying the psychological deficiencies of Edward II or Louis XV by extinguishing the very existence of England and France. The whole of this trick of explaining the fall of Poland is a piece of stale Prussian propaganda and has that unmistakable mark of everything that ever came out of Prussia, the lack of humour and of common sense. I am very far from suggesting that there are not real and subtle divisions of spirit and atmosphere between England and Poland, which may need not only sympathy but imagination to bridge. The Poles have their faults like other people, just as the English have their faults like other people. Only one of the faults of the English is a faculty of only seeing. We are not very likely to see the assassination of a premier in England, exactly on the lines of a disastrous assassination of the president in Poland. In England it is generally the life of the premier and not his death that is the disaster. It is something much more than a flippancy to say that, while we are all horrified at the number of men killed in Ireland, we are even more mystified by the number of men who were not killed in England. As the perilous problem of modern industrial England unfolds itself, it will be more and more manifest that we have not escaped disaster merely by escaping disasters. Our history has really been remarkably free from a certain kind of incidental shocks, which, when they happen to other nations, we find exceedingly shocking. But it is becoming more and more apparent to the most frivolous that it is possible to experience a ruin that is not a shock, a ruin that is really too ruinous to be a shock. It has been our national joke to represent other nations, like the Poles, the French, the Irish and the Italians, as lunatics given to screaming when there is nothing to scream about. God send they may not live to see us, in a more hideous fashion, as idiots still smiling when there is nothing to smile about. Something like that will certainly happen if we go on pitying peasantries for being peasantries, and refusing to face the mounting peril incurred by industrial societies merely by being industrial. The anarchy of industrial millionaires, thieving and thimble-rigging on too large a scale to be jailed as they deserve, is a great deal more anarchical than any anarchy of the Polish nobles. The disappearance of the middle class, of small fee farmers and shopkeepers, is a great deal more dangerous than any absence of a mercantile middle class in the old policy of Poland. The intolerance of the plutocratic press refusing to print a word of truth about its master is a great deal more intolerant than any theological intolerance of any Jesuit that ever lived. And if our nation falls by the deeper forces that are dividing and dissolving us, the weakness of character will not have been in the princes, but in the people. End of section 49. Poland and the Pedants.